For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion mourn through body, speech, and mind, I now fully vow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion mourn through body, speech, and mind, I now fully vow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully vow. Guidepost for silent illumination. Silent and serene, forgetting words, bright clarity appears before you. When you reflect it, you become vast. Where you embody it, you are spiritually uplifted. Spiritually solitary and shining, inner illumination restores wonder. Dew in the moonlight, a river of stars, snow-covered pines, clouds enveloping the peak. In darkness, it is most bright, while hidden, all the more manifest. The crane dreams in the wintry mists, the autumn waters flow far in the distance, endless kalpas are totally empty, all things completely the same. When wonder exists in serenity, all achievement is forgotten in illumination. What is this wonder alertly seeing through confusion is the way of silent illumination and the origin of subtle radiance. Vision penetrating into subtle radiance is weaving gold on a jade loom. Upright and, and inclined yield to each other. Light and dark are interdependent. Not depending on sense, faculty, and object, at the right time they interact. Drink the medicine of good views. Beat the poison-smeared drum. When they interact, killing and giving life are up to you. Through the gate, the self emerges and the branches bear fruit. Only silence is the supreme speech, only illumination the universal response, responding without failing in achievement, speaking without involving listeners. The 10,000 forms majestically glisten and expound the Dharma. All objects certify it, everyone in dialogue, dialoguing and certifying, they respond appropriately to each other. But if illumination neglects serenity, then aggressiveness appears, certifying and dialoguing, they respond to each other appropriately. But if serenity neglects illumination, murkiness leads to wasted dharma. When silent illumination is fulfilled, the lotus blossoms, the dreamer awakens, a hundred streams flow into the ocean, a 
thousand ranges face the highest peak, like geese preferring milk, like bees gathering nectar, when silent illumination reaches the ultimate, I offer my teaching. The teaching of silent illumination penetrates from the highest down to the foundation, the body being shunyata, the arms and mudra from the beginning to the end, the changing appearances of 10,000 differences share one pattern. Mr. Ho offered jade to the emperor, Minister Zhangru pointed to its flaws. Facing changes has its principles, the great function is without striving. The ruler stays in the kingdom, the general goes beyond the frontiers. Our school's affair hit the mark, straight and true, transmitted to all directions without desiring to gain credit. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the guidepost for silent illumination. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom, Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattva, mahasattvas. Wisdom beyond wisdom, maha prajna paramita. Uh, good evening, Bodhisattvas. Uh, let me fiddle with this thing. View. I would like to see people. Okay, great. There we go. Gallery. I think I have everyone on there. Uh, so my name is Gyoshin Laurel Ross. I think I know most of you. I'm very happy uh, to be here tonight. Tygen is away this evening, and uh, so he asked me to do the talk. And I'm always grateful for the opportunity uh, to be together with you so we can share our thoughts about our practice. Um, the date today is September 20th, which means we're at the very end of summer. And uh, the fall Equinox in Chicago will happen this Wednesday, September 22nd at uh, 2.20 a.m., 2.21 p.m. Um, and if you're in a different part of the world, 
looking around, um, that specific time will be different. And if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, which I don't think anyone here is, uh, this some parts of the stocks will be upside down for people listening in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, so when I noticed that Tigan had assigned me to do a talk the week of the equinox, I thought I would talk about equanimity. Um, I began to think about what to say about equanimity. And then I noticed that only a few weeks ago, uh, Hogetsu Lori Beltzer gave a talk here on equanimity. So uh, I listened to it online. It's a it's a really great talk. I recommend it if you if haven't already heard it, or even if you have. Um, but I decided to shift gears. So uh, this will be a talk about impermanence and silence. Um, paying attention to the equinox and the solstice, I think, is a perfect way uh, to practice with impermanence. Um, why do I say that? So in the Northern Hemisphere, where most of us live in, in dark December, when the nights are the longest and the days are the shortest, we reach this moment of the winter solstice, the peak of darkness. And at that moment, the days slowly begin to lengthen again. And over weeks and months, this gradual lengthening it, it continues until uh, day and night reach a point of, of equilibrium in March, which we call the spring equinox. And the spring equinox, is, it's, it's one of only two days every year when, when daylight and nighttime are, are uh, of equal length. The days continue to get longer until we reach peak daylight length on a celebratory day in June that we call the summer solstice, which is the opposite of the winter solstice, the longest day and the shortest night. And then every year, with no exceptions, days begin to gradually get shorter and shorter over weeks and months until we reach the point we'll, we'll experience this week, the fall equinox. Um, so from Wednesday on, we'll continue to lose daylight every day until the next winter solstice, which is December 21st at, at 9.59 p.m. in Chicago. So I'm deliberately belaboring this description <laughs> because I want to just remind us about this constant state of change. Um, all living things on earth are beholden to this, this state of impermanence, this, this cycle of change in our relationship to the sun. And the sun, as you know, sun provides the energy for all of our existence. Um, in March of 1958, uh, Gary Snyder, poet, Buddhist, genius, wrote a gorgeous poem about a momentous experience he had about the perfection of this impermanence. It's called Once Only. Once Only. Almost at the equator. 
almost at the equinox, exactly at midnight from a ship, the full moon in the center of the sky. Once, once only are, are strong words for me. I had a similar peak experience four years ago in the Galapagos when our, our boat was at the exact equator, almost at the equinox. And, and all the passengers were invited behind the scenes to take pictures of the instruments because they read 00000000. And, uh, and people just swooned. <laughs> so I mean, I asked myself, isn't everything once only? I mean, I, I struggle to hold on to that truth. The, the cycle I just described of, of lengthening and shortening of daylight is it's completely predictable, but is never static. And we, it's hard to hold on to it. No day has the same length of daylight as the day before it or the day after it, even though sometimes yeah, there's only a few seconds difference. And uh, in our species, humans, we've, we've created spiritual traditions connected to this cycle. All over the globe, you know, we have places like Stonehenge, which I, we just like dimly understand the significance of. Uh, but the September equinox in our northern hemisphere meant harvest celebrations. Um, this is a time of abundance and feasting. Tonight, we have a full moon. It rose at 7.54 during our service while we were chanting and bowing. And uh, so in September, the moonrise comes early. It comes, you know, like it did tonight, right after sunset. So. We have this bright moonlight early in the evening, which the farmers really loved. They were scrambling to harvest their crops. So, I mean, that's why the September full moon is called the harvest moon. And uh, the moon's going to look pretty full for the next few nights. So if we have a clear sky, we good to go out and uh, take a look at it. Um. As the periods of darkness uh, get longer in the fall, I always feel a, a, a pull inward. Um, my birthday's coming up in a week or so, comes at the end of this month. And uh, I feel this urge to reflect, um, you know, marking the end of another year of my brief time on this planet. Um, Taoists see fall as the time of moving from the dominant yang energy of summer, daytime, the sun, brightness, heat, movement, to the dominant yin energy of winter, nighttime, moon, shade, cold, rest. And I think we can actually feel this shift in our bodies, uh, in our minds, if we're paying attention. And um, for me, as a, a fairly strong introvert, uh, I, I regret the passing of summer, but I begin to sort of revisit my feelings of uh, comfort 
in the quiet, dark place of winter. So it's a cycle that's continuous and it never stops and it doesn't pause. Um, I, I just referred to the quiet, dark place of winter and the, and the darkness, as I say, comes from the movement of our planet, but the quiet is something we can choose at least partly. And, uh, I find it easier to choose silence during the time of year we're entering, the slower, darker time. I'm I'm drawn to silence. Um, Like Emily Dickinson, who wrote, I have an appetite for silence. I think my appetite for silence um, might come from my childhood when I was shuttled between my uh, chaotic, noisy household of my parents and siblings to the... uh, quiet, orderly household of my grandmother. I'm the uh, oldest of seven children. So in our house, someone was always crying or laughing or playing a musical instrument badly. <laughs> but but grandma's house was pretty silent, except if she was listening to the radio when she's um, sewing. I, th- I think this, this um, being drawn to silence might be a significant component of my affinity with with Soto Zen. I, I love the silence of the Zendo. In fact, I'd be happier if we all sat here in silence for the next 20 minutes and instead of listening, <laughs> still listening to me. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from Ralph Waldo Emerson is, I like the silent church. Before the service begins, better than any preaching. <laughs> um, but he he also wrote, um, silence is a solvent that destroys personality and gives us leave to be great and universal. Silence is a solvent that destroys personality and gives us leave to be great and universal. I think that could serve as as one description of of what happens in in Zen practice. Silence has power, I think. Um, Several years ago, my beloved Tai Chi teacher, Elizabeth Wenscott, was um, was shocking. She was diagnosed with stage four cervical cancer at age 52. And uh, we called her E, so I'm going to call her that tonight. And uh, sort of out of the blue, she was given just a few months to live. And um, she... um, she became very weak. She she could not leave her bed. And um, she asked for students to sit with her during those last weeks. She, she didn't want to be alone. So her wife created a schedule, and um, we had these shifts of two or three hours a few times a week. And it, we weren't there to do medical things. That was handled uh, by a nurse. We we're, were there just to be by her side because that's what she had asked for. And uh, it was intimate and it was very sorrowful. 
and we had no guidance. So uh, we each more or less did what, what came to us naturally. Um, some people brought music. Some people read to her. One woman um, whose shift followed mine told me that she was planning to tell E the latest developments in this TV show that she and E enjoyed. But um, as for me, I I sat with her almost entirely in silence for those uh, many hours. And um, she knew I was there. And she acknowledged me. And occasionally she'd ask for something like water. But, but mostly we just sat quietly together. Um, we only had a few short conversations. One time she told me she was jealous that I had a future to look forward to. And she did not. I think she was helping me to value my life. And at work, she was, she was still my teacher. Um, thinking about it, our time together wasn't the same as Zazen because I was sitting with my full attention on her. Um, it was, it was, I don't know, something like tandem Zazen. Um, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying silence is good and sound is bad. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure she, she liked the music and she enjoyed hearing about the next episode of her favorite TV show. But just pointing out that, that's, that silence was, the silence was good too. I think it's underrated and, and mostly it's absent from our lives. Um, so I think of the Zendo as a refuge from a really noisy world. It's a place where we can go to be silent. Um, even though um, I think all of us have had the experience of being annoyed by random sounds like fire trucks going by or noisy neighbors or fidgeting song members. But uh, eventually we learn to accept these sounds is sort of part of the richness of, of sitting with our own silence. So it's part of our practice to learn how to be silent and experience whatever comes up. It's beyond dealing with the, the noise of the room we're sitting in. It's, it's dealing with the noise in our chattering uh, minds. You, you probably have the same experience I do where friends ask to teach them to meditate. And uh, usually I say something like, well, it's pretty simple. Just sit down and shut up. <laughs> um, so philosophers and psychologists and poets written a lot about silence. Um, I found something really interesting written by someone named Paul Goodman, who I wasn't too familiar with. He was this quirky, lefty public intellectual who's pretty well known in the 60s and 70s. And he, he really went into analyzing silence and 
he, he, he figured out that in his analysis, there are nine kinds of silence. And I'm going to run through them quickly. Don't worry too much about keeping up with this. Just get the general uh, gist of it. One, there's dumb silence of slumber or apathy. Two, the sober silence that goes with a solemn animal face. Three, the fertile silence of awareness whence emerge new thoughts. Four, the alive silence of alert perception. Five, the musical silence that accompanies absorbed activity. Six, the silence of listening to another speak. Seven, the noisy silence of resentment and self-recrimination. Eight, baffled silence. And finally, nine, the silence of peaceful accord with other persons or communion with the cosmos. It's way too much to tackle in this short talk, and I'm not going to even try, but I love the expansiveness of his thinking. And uh, just to say, not all these kinds of silence are good. You know, the dumb silence of slumber or apathy is a problem. And so is the noisy silence of resentment and self-recrimination. But the silence of accord with other persons, peaceful accord with other persons, that describes the silence E and I shared when, when she was dying. Maury Sendak wrote, everyone should be quiet by a little stream and listen. And that, I think, is the silence of listening to another speak and not necessarily only our own species, I would point out. The fertile silence of awareness whence emerge new thoughts is, I think, what Wendell Berry was referring to in his poem, How to Be a Poet, that begins... Make a place to sit down, sit down, be quiet. Well, that's how Wendell Berry thinks we should be a poet. So we chanted the guidepost to silent illumination during our service tonight. And um, this is a poem by 12th century Chinese teacher Hong Zhu Shenwei which I can never pronounce, but that's my best shot at it. Uh, he's a precursor to Dogen, the founder of our tradition. And this beautiful poem describes the silent meditation that's at the heart of our practice. Our teacher, Tygen, wrote a book uh, published in uh, 2000 called Cultivating the Empty Field, the Silent Illumination of Zen Master Hongzhu. So I found this book on my bookshelf and I had written in the beginning that I uh, read it in 2014. And uh, clearly I studied it back then because there were all these underlying passages and notes, but somehow every time I read this poem, it sounds all new to me. And that happened again tonight, even though I had read it about five times today. <laughs> um 
one way to think about silent illumination is not only a method of practice, but it's a description of the awakened state. Um, sometimes referred to as our, our true nature. So silent illumination is a metaphor for this direct realization. It's a very beautiful image. Um, and it quotes Suzuki Roshi on this. The most important thing is when you practice zazen, it's necessary to forget all gaining idea, all dualistic idea, just practice zazen in certain posture. Don't think about anything. Just remain on your cushion without thinking, without expecting anything. Then you, or true nature, will resume to its own nature, and eventually you will resume to your own nature. You resume to your true nature when the true nature resumes to its own nature. <laughs> so we're instructed that we're already awakened, but that practice is, is still is still necessary. Um, Practice helps us remove the barriers that conceal our true nature. Uh, do I understand this completely? No. Do I believe it? good guidance? Yes. Do I love this poem? Absolutely. So I'm going to just end with the first few lines that we chanted earlier. Guideposts for silent illumination. Silent and serene, forgetting words, bright clarity appears before you. When you reflect, when you reflect it, you become fast. Where you embody it, you're spiritually uplifted, spiritually solitary and shining. Inner illumination restores wonder. Um, thank you for your kind attention. And uh, I am very eager to hear any um, responses. Don't be quiet. Don't be silent. <laughs> How do we do this? Do I call on people? Do people raise their hand? You can just raise your hand like that, or you can just unmute yourself and shout out whatever you want to say. Yeah, I see uh, Eve has raised her hand. Her video isn't on, but she's doing it digitally. Ah, Eve. Yeah, so I have a question because I heard lines about dialogue. Could you reread those lines in the in the silent illumination chant? In the silent illumination, the, the the lines that I just read at the end, I'll read them again. But in other words, the first three lines of the poem is what I read. Silent and serene, forgetting words, bright clarity appears before you. When you reflect it, you become vast. Where you embody it, you are spiritually uplifted. 
spiritually solitary and shining, inner illumination restores wonder. Is that what you were asking? Why are some lines about dialogue? Earlier in the poem, Gyoshin, there there are some lines about that. I can uh, screen share if that would be helpful. Yeah, Yeah. later later in the poem? Okay. That would be great. Uh, Dialogue. I'm scanning. Yeah. Yeah, that. All objects certify it. Everyone in... Okay, let's go back. Uh, The 10,000 forms majestically glisten and expound the Dharma. All objects certify it. Everyone in dialogue. Dialoguing and certifying... They respond appropriately to each other. But if illumination neglects serenity, then aggressiveness appears. I'll stop there. There's a period after. Oh, I guess it's going to go on about dialoguing. Certifying and dialoguing, they respond to each other appropriately. Oh, But if serenity neglects illumination, murkiness leads to wasted dharma. Murkiness. That sounds like a problem. (laughs) Murkiness requires. Uh, What is your question about dialogue? Well, I mean, it just seemed, uh, I mean, I, I, I understand in some sense it isn't. But so the relationship between the dialogue and the silence was... Um, what I was interested in. I mean, ah. your dialogue in silence, if you're listening to how how things respond to each other, or what? Um, so, uh, the way I'm understanding this, we are, we, the larger we, meaning all sentient beings in the broadest possible definition of that are in continual relationship with each other. I'm not sure dialogue would is the perfect word. This is all about translation, mm-hmm. but in, in relationship with each other, meaning all manner of communication. Um. And this is saying they respond appropriately to each other. But if illumination neglects serenity, then aggressiveness appears. Um, And if serenity neglects illumination, murkiness leads to wasted dharma. So I'm not claiming I understand this perfectly, but my um, uh, um, imperfect, my imperfect uh, understanding of it is this is an ongoing, constant communication 
among or interaction among all uh, sentient beings that is um, that is uh, the sort of manifestation of uh, the awakened state. I mean, that's what reality is, right? Mm-hmm. That's that. That's my best shot at it. And uh, I'm so sorry this is being uh, recorded because I'm not sure I want to go on record with that uh, uh, best best version of it. Uh, the one of the one of the reasons poem is so compelling is as I as I mentioned uh, every time I read it I, I get it I get another I get another set of insights from it and. Uh, it's uh, it's another version of impermanence, I guess. Yeah, just no, to, just just to it. circle back, <laughs> Aaron. It looks like you may have a thought. You may have a good thought on this. Help me out. <laughs> Thank you, Laurel. Um, I really enjoyed the talk, and uh, I'm kind of new to Ancient Dragon. I am here in uh, Washington D.C. Ah, um, but Eastern will- time. Oh, yeah. I, I, as soon as you started right. talking about it, I was like, okay, let's see. Does that mean it's going to be 3 o'clock here? If it's 2 I think it'll be 3.21 p.m., right, uh, on Wednesday. <laughs> so uh, I'm aware that you're an ecologist and that you speak widely uh, about. Um, so, so, yeah, so climate crisis, you know, we're in the midst of that. And you started to allude to that in your talk. and. Um, like many of us, I'm, you know, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm outraged. The sequoias are burning, you know, as we meet tonight. Um, and you talk about the different, maybe if you could tie, tie more or say more about silence in the midst of this and what we need to do as engaged Buddhists, uh, if anything, um, and in particular, what came to mind was the title of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which, mm-hmm. you know, that was a, a not a good type of silence. Uh, that right. was silence when it shouldn't be silence. There should be birds chirping in the spring. And she and she predicted a world where, you know, the birds were dead. So if you could say something about that without getting too further depressed. <laughs> I, I will say something about that. So the silence of the Zendo is our silence while we're um, engaging with the rest of the universe. I mean, it's us shutting up so that we can engage and pay attention. Um so yesterday, I had the most remarkable experience. Uh, it was a Soto Zen Buddhist experience and an art experience. And it was about creating peace through art. Uh, I went to a performance um, at the Newberry Library uh, where Kaz Tanahashi, who's a translator with Taigen of, of many Japanese um, poems and scriptures, uh, was painting while a group of musicians was performing 
a piece called Human to Human, and Cause was painting, and the and it was um, it was simulcast to twenty different countries, and the mm-hmm. idea was to raise our awareness about um, peace, <laughs> and it was powerful. It it was, and I thought, oh, you know, we feel so. Um, we feel so stuck or, or, you know, we feel so um, impotent. We feel so uh, unable to figure out how to act. And, um, and here are some people that figured out how to act. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I think Aaron, you're exactly right. That that's what we have to do is, act on our um, strong feelings that there's something really wrong here. And, and that doesn't mean we all know we, we all do the same thing. I mean, I think we each bring different things to the conversation, to the, to the, um, you know, to the table, so to speak. Um, And we, uh, sing or we <laughs> paint or we write or we talk to our neighbor <laughs> or um, if we're a billionaire, we write a check to the people, the scientists who are figuring it out for, you know, we each have something else, something different to offer. We raise our children with awareness and sensitivity um, we follow the precepts because that makes the world a better place. Um, yeah, it's a tough, it's tough. My my daughter lives in LA and she told me that um, about 10 days ago, she took a walk in the park next to her uh, house with her partner and, and there were two trees on fire. So they called 911 and the fire department came and put the fire out and said, oh, yes, we're getting a lot of calls like this. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess some ember had come from somewhere and set the trees in the park on fire. So anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your fine question. <laughs> and I, I welcome other people's responses to it. It's the kind of thing that everyone needs to um everyone needs to you know yeah step up and shout or cry or whatever mm-hmm. yeah thank you what is alex's picture okay <laughs> I'll, I'll nicholas well, hi, great, great to see you. I know. I I feel like I've seen you a lot on Zoom. You know? <laughs> I haven't seen you in person for years. I, I feel like there's Laurel. <laughs> Amazing. Um, anyway, I loved your talk. And uh, I always love hearing, um, being reminded of... Um, 
you know, the phases of, you know, you know, our, our relationship with the sun and, and the, you know, the phases of light that we, you know, travel through on a yearly basis and just the, how these are, 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 you know, they're truths, they're facts. They're not, you know, you don't have to believe them. They just are. So right. like, <laughs> even Fox news isn't complaining. Right. <laughs> Like the, that every day is is slightly, you know, a, a different amount of time. You know, it's like, it's just, it's, it's just like that. Just hearing that tonight, it's like, I feel like it opens something up, you know, for me in terms of, of uh, that there are just, there are truths that j- just resonate with my, uh, you know, like my heart, mind and, and allow me to feel more connected, I guess. And I guess that's why we do this and at least why I do that, why I come together and all here on Zoom or in person um, is to get that sort of relief, you know, um, and feel that sort of connection that's greater than, you know, myself or even the group for that matter. But um and I and I thought a lot about while you were mentioning all that. When I was younger, I used to when I lived in San Francisco, I studied with Starhawk. I don't know if you know. If she, oh, I do. Yeah, she's great. And I I took yeah, magic. I, book. I took magic <laughs> <laughs> witchcraft classes actually, and uh, <laughs> which were basically sort of like she's a neo paganist, and you know, like, but she's a major force of West Coast, particularly in the mission in San Francisco where I lived and, and I would participate in, in, uh, you know, these uh, rites of passage with um, her community. And it was just so amazing, you know, every time um, and, and just so grounding. And so just your mentioning uh, of these, you know, they're like holidays really. Um, you know, they're, they're forgotten by a lot of, you know, our culture. And so it's just great to be reminded that, um, yeah, things happen whether I notice them or not. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I can notice them. I feel like I'm, I feel, yeah, I, I basically feel like I've been in a bit of a spiritual desert on some level, but so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna have to take some action around that, and I need to go do a like a week long retreat somewhere, and move back to Chicago next spring is my plan. So that'll be good too. Oh. Are you in Indiana now? Yeah, I'm in Indiana. Uh, you know, and I'm con- I'm with my family a lot too, which is you know little crazy making as well but well where where in indiana it, i'm on winona lake in a house on winona lake indiana uh near it's part it's sort of like warsaw and uh, winona lake are kind of the same little city but they're each their own municipality um it's about two hours outside of chicago Sort of uh, not too far from South Bend, like 45 minutes from South Bend. So, yeah, I fled here 
you do during the pandemic and i just you know now it's been delayed because of all the other variants and whatnot so still here but it's good to connect with y'all over the zoom good to see you nicholas ed ed's got his hand up yeah thanks thanks laurel and before i ask you my question I have to tell Nicholas, I've never heard the term neo-paganist before. Thank you. <laughs> um, I may I have may- to. <laughs> I'm not sure. But, I, think, uh, I, I think I know what it, I think I know what it means, though. But I mean, I have an idea what it might mean. But the um, yeah, like Whitman. I was going to ask Laurel, is this the harvest moon we're, we're yes. looking at? Yes, this is the harvest moon we're looking at. Actually, I can't see it from my dining room where I'm sitting, but yes, is it's the harvest. They call it the harvest moon because that's when all the farmers were, as I mentioned, they're so grateful that the, well, I hope they're grateful, but <laughs> they're using the the early sun, the early moonrise, which follows right after the sunset. So then they have more hours to harvest. That's the historical and it's, is this moon usually more magnified, or is that just a myth? In, in it's not magnified, but I think it's there's a um, some kind of uh, physical, I don't know the, the the physics of it, but there's some kind of light bending things. It appears a little uh, more. Yeah, I think maybe because we see it like lower on the horizon. Yeah, something like that. that earlier at night, and then. And then when you see it lower on the horizon, it looks bigger because, like you said, the light bending. And and you did you quote Thoreau earlier about his appreciation of a church aisled an aisled church prior to the speaking of the priest? Was that that was, that was not Thoreau? That was uh, his teacher, Emerson. Um, Emerson. Yeah. The older I get, the more I like Emerson. <laughs> <laughs> and the and the more Thoreau seems a little naive in wow. his wonderful way. I, I mean, I love Thoreau, but anyway, is it, I'm turning into an old fogey, I guess. <laughs> is, is there a relationship between silence, the harvest, and having brought the crops in, and the sort of the ceasing of activities that maybe things are a little less frenetic the time of year? There's a transitional time of year where there's less activity, or is that... Well, after the harvest, there's less the harvest because the harvest has occurred, or is it beginning? Is that the thinking now with the harvest moon? Is that an indication to start your harvest? I suppose. You know, every year is different. I, I'm not a farmer, but I am a, a prairie restorationist, and we harvest seeds in the fall. And I know that every year is different, and this year is a very dry year. We don't irrigate the prairie but the farmers do but anyway everything's a little early this year because of the dryness so i only say that because every year is different and some of the years are uh have conditions where the harvest would go later so but you know september end of sep what are we third week in september that's sort of the heart of when most people harvest and depending on what they're growing i imagine once they get it uh, tucked away, they uh, take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
but they still have, you know, they still have their animals to take care of. And that's probably when they, you know, whatever, whitewash the fence or something. <laughs> farmers, farmers don't sit around much is my understanding. Well, well Gioshin, when, when you talked about that inward pool, you know, that really resonated with me when you go yeah. into the, the darker time of the year. And I guess what it always it makes me think about isn't, um, is the people like living in the far north, like the Norse and then the peoples of the Northwest coast and North yeah. America. And, yeah. and I associate like the long nights with, um, with storytelling with, yeah. yeah, with, with listening, you know, with, with being quiet, with less activity because there's less going on in terms of farming or gathering, but, um, and, and that, that state where, you know, people tell myths and, and there's that sort of dream state. So yeah, that's, that's, yeah, what the dark times make, make me think of. And in, in our tradition, uh, in mid-December, about the time of the winter solstice, the longest night and the shortest day, we have our longest uh, sashins, the rohatsu sashins, which are our longest period of um, of meditation in community. And uh, I don't know if that's going to happen this year. Everything is so difficult. Um, I imagine, and last year it did not happen. Um, but, um, you know, for, for over a thousand years, <laughs> that, that was the tradition to have the longest period of uh, meditation be at that time of year. So thank you. And just very, very briefly, what I was trying, what I was wanting to get to and, and say is that an architectural language, usually a silent place is a place that speaks to an extension of time to the past and to the future, such as for instance, a church, a church hall or in, or in, in Northern Europe and Europe, the, the great barns that would store the grain for the village and the community over a period of time were always sort of referred to as, as silent places or places of silence in the human experience. And so the relationship between silence and a sense of time and a sense of an, an ordered span of time seems, seems to, seems to be um, equated. For the so are, are you saying that architects design that into spaces that they're designing? They design well, this kind of silence? Maybe European architects with a historical sense. I should narrow it down a little bit. But back in the day, that would have been considered a recognition that would be commonly deployed in the mm. building. I would say after you know, in modern times, it's been all dismissed as mythic, but but huh. it's quite powerful. And when you look at the pictures of the Isle Barns in Europe, which they preserve them, even though they're not used as granaries any longer, unlike our own barns in America, which routinely decay and fall away, uh, they're very powerfully quiet places. Oh, so, that's so interesting. Yeah. So thank you for your talk. It brought that to mind. Well, thank you for that. I've written down three things. Starhawk. <laughs> Silent 
Oh, I can't even read my um, handwriting. Architectural. Hmm. Yeah, the great, anyway. the great Isle Barns of Europe are very much silent places. So. Thank you. Other people. Well, maybe we're done. Thank you for your attention.